Well, good morning, Sailorville. If you brought a copy of Scripture with you this morning, and even if you didn't, uh, the words will be up on the screen. But if you did, Ezra chapter 3, as we continue in our series, God help us. Anybody here need help from God? Yeah, me too. Me too. Ezra chapter 3. When my wife, Marilyn, and I were dating some 26 years, 27 years ago, we were both widow and widower, so we had a lot in our past, so we thought it'd be wise to go down memory lane. I went and visited her place, and she came and visited my place, my happy place, at 115 Locust Street in Waterloo, Iowa. I took her there, and uh, except it was not the same, not even close. The house was run down. The garage, <laughs> the garage roof had caved in. Uh, it was grown over in ruins. And there was even a, a perception of evil all around the house and the neighboring homes. I won't get into why. We were afraid almost to get out of the car. When the children of Israel, the Jews, returned from the Babylonian captivity of 70 years, Remember, they'd never seen Jerusalem, at least most of them, only a very small percentage. The old codgers, and we'll come back to them, were the only ones who had seen the former glory. They had heard about the land flowing with milk and honey, the glory of Jerusalem and the temple. But when they arrived, it was not the same. Not even close. It was run down, grown over, and in ruins, and evil surrounded their old home. I was just visiting my old home. They were going there to live. But where to begin? They'd been away for so long. The place was in a shambles, and so were many of their lives. If you'll recall, five out of the six of the Jews stayed in Babylon now Medo-Persia. But these 50,000 or so, how would they return to God? I wonder if the condition of the temple and the Jews describes a number of you here this morning. Are you watching online? You know of God, but you don't really know God. And if you do know God, you're far from God. And hence the message is, God help us return to you. How do we do that? The prophet Zechariah records one of the most beautiful declarations of God to his people that had gone far away from God. And here it is. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I'll return to you. Isn't that beautiful? Some of you need to hear that this morning. You don't want to hear, you wicked sinner, look at all, look at you've done to your life and now all these other lives, look at the shambles all around you. It's your fault. You don't need to hear that right now. You need to hear, return to me, and I'll return to you. But what does that look like? Returning to God. To review, as we just started this series last week. You know, when you go to Ezra, you're just sort of plopping yourself into the middle of the Old Testament without a whole lot of context. But let's just go back to the kings. When uh, after the days of the judges, God gave Israel 
kings. He gave them three united kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, all right? They, they were kings over the united empire of Israel. At the end of Solomon's reign, the kingdom split. You had the 10 tribes of Israel to the north and the two tribes of Judah to the south. And these years were disastrous years. No good tribes, no good kings in the north, only a handful of good kings in the south. And by and by, they rebelled against the living God. They turned from God through their sin. And in 722 BC, Assyria assimilated those northern tribes and disbanded them. In 586 BC, in the third wave from Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar took the children of Judah and actually, there were remnants of all 12 tribes in that and took them to Babylon to, as Jeremiah predicted, 70 years of captivity. Uh, so they were there for 70 years, as Jeremiah predicted. And then God would raise up, of all things, a pagan king. We talked about him. He's list, his name is actually listed 150 years earlier in the book of Isaiah, Cyrus. Cyrus, God raises up, who takes it upon himself as his, he, he may not even be a follower of God, but he takes it upon himself to release the Jews to go back from the area of Babylon, now Medo-Persia, to the promised land. And just to give you a, a look at what it was, here's the map of, of the, of the Medo-Persian empire, all in green, and what the little red hook there is the, is the traverse that they would have taken back to Jerusalem along the Fertile Crescent. It would be quite a trip. It'd take quite a while, about four months to get there. But here's the point. The Jews had returned to the promised land, but had they returned to God? Some of you have returned to church. Here you are. Or you've returned to thinking religiously. You know, you're doing religious things or you're thinking about God. But have you actually returned to him? Hence the title of the message, God help us return to you. And if you're gonna return to God in accordance with this passage in chapter three, as we'll be getting to it, it's gonna involve at least four things. Rejecting, rebuilding, remembering, and rejoicing, okay? So let's look at the text, Ezra chapter three. When the seventh month came, and that's significant because in the seventh month, you've got all kinds of festivals taking place, including Passover and tabernacles, which is actually mentioned here. When the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their towns. The people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, with the, his fellow priest. Now, the little clarification. Ezra, who the book is titled, is a priest. He has, he's not even around yet. Ezra's not gonna be around for se several decades, actually. Uh, but this is the guy running the priesthood now, Jeshua. And then Zerubbabel, okay? So don't name your kid Zerubbabel, but he's a pretty cool guy. He's the governor. He's the one who led this uh, trip back. He's the son of Shealtiel with his kinsmen. And now watch this. They built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. We'll, we'll look at them next week in chapter four. And they offered burnt offerings on it 
to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Okay, so God help us to return to him. And the first thing that has to happen is rejecting. You need to, re, by re, you're gonna do that. If you're gonna return to God, you'll do so by rejecting the sins that have held you. The children of Israel were literally held in captivity for 70 years. It was a four-month journey to go from the area of Babylon to Jerusalem. I say four months. It's not like they were dating this idea. They weren't going back. I'm reminded of the great Alexander the Great. 200 years later, he would rise up and actually go up against the Persians. One of the stories were that when he landed on Persian soil, listen to this military guys, the ships were out there in the harbor, he burned them while they were in the harbor. And he looked at his troops, he said, we must win. There was no going back. When God says you come to him, when you come to Jesus, those of you who have and some of you still need to, it says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. What does that even mean? Uh, We say, well, it means your sins are forgiven, you have a place in heaven, all that's true. But practically speaking, what does it mean, pragmatically speaking, for things to pass away? I think the answer to that is actually given to us by, of all people, Solomon in the Old Testament. When he wrote the book of Proverbs, he said in chapter 28, in verse 13, listen to this, he said, he who covers his sins shall not prosper. But the one who confesses and forsakes will have mercy. Have you ever read that? If you're a person here who is covering your sin, even now as we speak, you ain't going nowhere. You won't prosper. You won't go forward. It's the one who confesses them, acknowledges them, and then forsakes them that has mercy. And the great Southern Baptist preacher Vance Havner probably put it best when he said, we cannot expect God to take away our sins by forgiving them if we will not put them away by forsaking them. That's worth repeating. We cannot expect God to take away our sins by forgiving them if we will not put them away by forsaking them. Go ahead and say it. Wow. Does it apply? Speaking of burning your boat, I worked with a young man very closely who had walked away from God when he was really young, came to Jesus when he was young, then walked away from God. And then through a series of circumstances, God got all of his life. And one of the very first things he did when he repented and turned back to God, when he turned back to God, he went to a house where he told me just the other day there were about a dozen or more guys that were there doing drugs where he would do the same thing. And he declared to them, I'm following Jesus Christ. I still wanna be your friends, but I'm not gonna come back here and do this anymore. And immediately there ensued criticism, you know, just back and forth. A couple of guys thought it was cool because he was doing what he wanted to do, but there was one young man in that group that happened to be his little brother who noticed and heard from his brother and realized then God was doing something in his life. It had an impact on his little brother who would repent of his own sin, trust Jesus as a savior and is now in ministry, amen? 
If you're gonna return to God, you'll do so by rejecting the sins that have held you. What are those sins? Secondly, by rebuilding your broken altar. You see, all, you see that in verse two, they, built the, they rebuilt the altar. Just imagine, if you, if you go into the text, they're going to this place, it's, it's a shambles. There's, there's brick and mortar all over the place. They would have had to clean it off to find the very place where the altar was. The Jews found the original altar visible in the remains, but that was about it. And here is the point. Before everything else, even before the superstructure of the temple was built, even before the foundation of the temple was built, they started with the altar. I love this. I absolutely love this. Later on in verse eight, the altar itself is called, wait for it, the house of God. The altar is called the house of God. Why is that? Because a house is where somebody lives. And God had said of the altar, back in the days of Moses when he gave them instructions for the tabernacle, he said, build the altar. He said, there I will meet with the people. God meets you, he meets me, no matter where you are in your walk with God, whether you know God, walked away from God, or you've never known God, he meets you at the altar. That's where you need to go. The great Bible expositor, Baptist Bible expositor with the Lord now, Alexander McLaren, wrote this, in this about this passage. He said, there cannot be a temple without an altar but there may be an altar without a temple. God meets men at the place of sacrifice, even though there be no house for his name. Today, there's only one altar, the cross of Jesus Christ, amen? And it is indeed called that. The writer of Hebrews actually says, we have an altar, and he was referring directly to the cross of Jesus. Listen to me, you can change a thousand things about your life, but you will never know God, much less return to God, unless you come to the altar. The mighty cross of Jesus Christ, that's where God meets people, amen? And by the way, you don't need to rebuild this cross, just return to it. Your life right now, as it sits, as you sit, your life right now might be in ruins, but the cross of Jesus Christ remains upright, in place, and ready for you to return. I keep hearing the voice of God saying, return to me, I'll return to you. You wanna return to God this morning and reject the things, the sins that have held you. Reject them and rebuild your altar. Thirdly, you'll do it by remembering God's kindness in your past. You saw in verse one, it said the seventh month. This is, he, he points this out because this is the month where so much celebration. This is the month of Passover. This is the month of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And I want you to know, we're picking up in verse four where we left off. Look at verse four. And 
they kept the Feast of Booths. Some of your Bibles say, might say tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the Lord, uh, of the temple of the Lord, was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and to the carpenters, food and drink, etc. Eight times it mentions offerings that they gave. Why? I'll tell you why. Because it's the first time they'd offered anything in 70 years. So they made sure they were giving themselves and their monies to God. Historians tell us that in Babylon, there were 50 different pagan temples. These children of Israel grew up around idolatry and sensuality. In fact, there were 180 outdoor shrines to the goddess Ishtar, the goddess of war and sex. The same goddess that some of you are worshiping right now. But Ezra here specifies of all of these offerings, all of these feasts, he specifies one. Did you catch which one it was? I've mentioned it a few times. The Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. A tabernacle is a tent. Now, of all the feasts, the greatest, the highest of all feasts is Passover for sure. But the happiest of all is Tabernacles. That was, that was party day for the Jews. It was a happy time. It was a huge celebration. They loved the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, the, rabbi, the ancient rabbis called the Feast of Tabernacles simply the holiday. They, I mean, they would all, to this present day, Orthodox Jews, will, they'll live in tents during that week. And they, they, they remember, they remember, they remember the goodness and kindness of God in their lives while they were in the wilderness for 40 years and God provided for them with manna every. Every single day, thank you, Jesus. Amen? So it's a happy time. And if you're going to return to God, you have to remember his kindness towards you. When Jesus addressed the whole business of returning to God to the Ephesians in, on the flip side of the Bible in Revelation 2, remember the Ephesians? They, they, had all things, they had a lot of things going, but they'd left their first love. Remember that? So Jesus said, the very first word out of Jesus' mouth to them in returning, he said, remember. Now think with me on this, every one of you here. He said, remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. You're not gonna repent and you're not gonna get back on the spiritual saddle, so to speak, until you remember the kindness of God in your life. Remember from where you have fallen. Now think that. The word remember is a point of reference. You should write that down. It's a point of reference. That's what that is. It's some time in your life where you began to slide backwards. It might, been, it might have been something small or big. It could be something you looked at, a person you encountered, a temptation that you gave into, 
Whatever it was, it's a point of reference. There's a time. Remember, Jesus said, from where you have fallen. That's a point of reference. You're not gonna repent until you go there, go there, go there to that time and repent and then do the first works. And if you're a Christian in this room or watching online and you're in a funk right now, remembering is the key to, to coming out of your funk. The psalmist said, when he was in a bad place, when he was in a funk, the psalmist said, I remember, Psalm 143, verse five, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all of your works. I muse on the work of your hands. And he came out just like you will. The forefathers of the, of the Jews had spurned God's kindnesses. He, they'd spurned his goodness. That's why they went into captivity. For the returnees, remembering involved sacrifices and many of them and giving. By the way, you show me a Christian who doesn't give out of gratitude and I'll show you somebody who might not be a Christian. Remember. Remember can be the very thing that can both bring great conviction, but it can bring you out of it as well, out of this muck and mire you're in. There's an old hymn that's a favorite, I'm sure, of some of yours. It's certainly one of mine. It's Come Thou Fount. Remember that one? Come Thou Fount of Many Blessings. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Remember that? The, the author was Robert Robertson. As the story has it, he wrote that hymn when he was very young and a fervent pastor. And then through a series of circumstances, he wasn't walking with God. He turned away from God. And he was in a, a, a stagecoach of sorts with another young lady next to him one day who had the hymn in her hand and was muttering and, and, and singing it just to herself. And then she said to Robert Robinson, have you, have you ever heard this hymn? To which Robinson said, ma'am, I'm the unhappy man who wrote that hymn. Think about that. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, remembering not just from where you have fallen, but the kindness of God to keep you from falling into the pits of hell. Fourthly and finally, if you're gonna return to God, you need to be, you'll do so rejoicing in what God has done, right? So they got the altar, it's up. They are starting to outline the the foundation. So they got the foundation. It's there. And look at verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priest and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively. That means back and forth toward one another like we've done here from time to time. Praising and giving thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures uh, forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. Hallelujah. It had been exactly 70 years since the first deportation had taken place and these Jews had been taken to Babylon. And here they are now singing to one another, like Paul says to both the Colossians and the Ephesians, 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, singing to one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. With great singing. Notice what it says at the end of verse 11. They shouted with a great shout. I mean, note the emotion here. I mean, we tasted, did we not? We tasted this emotion just a couple of weeks ago at those baptisms on Easter. Throughout the whole time, there was music and there were tears and there was joy and there was singing and there was praising and there was clapping, right? All of this was evidence of the saving power of God on full, irresistible display. Spurgeon, Spurgeon, before the worship wars ever started, wrote these words from Psalm 150, this great praise psalm. He said, are there not periods of life when we feel so glad we could dance for joy? If men are dull in the worship of the Lord our God, they are not acting consistently with the character of their religion. Wow. So here they are, shouting and giving praise to God. How cool is this? But sadly, not everyone was clicking their heels, raising their hands, praising the Lord, and shouting for joy. There was a cacophony going on. That's a, that's a funky word. Cacophony means bad sound. You want to hear it? You can almost hear it in these words. Skip down to verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men, who had seen the first house, that's Solomon's temple. These guys were probably in their 70s or 80s, okay? Wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. <laughs> Not as big as the other one. Though they shouted out loud for joy so that the people could not, look how pathetic this is. The people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout. The sound was heard from far away. The old codgers. We got any old codgers here? I guess I'm one of them. Both Haggai and Zechariah, who were contemporaries of Ezra, confirmed this, by the way. They confirmed it was the old guys who were complaining. I mean, it's not as big. Oh, my goodness. It's not like it used to be. I got news for you, by the way. It's never like it used to be. But it's true. This new temple would not be as glorious as Solomon's. It wouldn't have the ark. It wouldn't have the Shekinah glory. It certainly would not have the dimensions of Solomon's temple or its splendor. In fact, it's been estimated that if Solomon's temple could be built today the way it was built in Solomon's day, it would be worth eight to $10 billion. There's like nothing like it. And God was not happy with these complainers. Through Zechariah, who spoke to Zerubbabel, remember it's Zerubbabel who led this here and led the, the altar, reconstruction of the altar and the, and the temple. Zechariah said to Zerubbabel from God, these are God's words to Zerubbabel, for who has despised the day of small things? I'll tell you who, the old codgers, that's who. It's as if God was saying, isn't it enough that you're back? Isn't it enough that you're back and I'm with you? Amen. He's saying rejoice. I get it, though. I love the past, too. I've been around long enough to love the past. 
And in fact, as we, you know, we're, we're rounding the horn to this wonderful new construction, to the glory of God, we're even doing the outside of the church differently. I, I told our guys, I said, look, I, I wanna create like a, a time continuum of our church to celebrate the things that God has done. And almost uh, many of us have seen the iconic picture that was there on the north side. Many wedding pictures are taken below this, right? The old Sailorville Baptist Church sign. I, I envision, let's cut the whole thing out just like it is and we'll put it on stands and we'll create this timeline. Wouldn't that be cool? Please, two of you say yes. <laughs> because the response was, that's gonna be cost prohibitive. Yeah, I, I don't care how I don't care how costly it is. It's part of our past. So that was the plan. Until just a few weeks ago, when our administrative pastor came to me, he said, Pastor, I have good news and I have bad news. I said, well, what's, what's the good news? Good news is your office is almost complete. You're gonna have not one, but three windows. Yes! I didn't have any windows in my last office. What's bad news? Well, while they were cutting out the middle window, they cut right through that old sign and destroyed it. Yeah, I was ticked. So much for preserving a piece of the past. But Abe's point was, let's focus on the future. You know, it's hard to move forward when you're always looking back. And I've said this in another message long ago, concentration on the past is a momentum killer in the present. These Jews were back home, hallelujah. And no, it was not going to be the same. But it never is the same. When someone says to me, it's not the same as it used to be, I always say, I hope not. Sailorville Church, God has done great things for us and is doing great things for us. Rejoice! And some of you, some of you like these Jews have been away a long time. And long is a relative term, maybe months. For some, it's been two or three or four years, five years. You've been away from God. Why not return home? Why not hear God's voice? Return to me. I'll return to you. Some of you are outside the family of God right now. And Jesus is, he's knocking at your door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He who will hear my voice and invite me in, I'll dine with him eternally. Why not invite Jesus in to your heart for supper? A meal that never, ever ends. Amen? And that's not gonna happen unless you come to the altar. You can change a thousand things in your life but if you never come to the altar, the cross of Jesus, nothing's gonna matter. It's all just behavior change. It's not internal. God wants to meet with you. And that's where he meets with you, at his altar. Will you meet with him?
Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you. Thank you for the stories of the Old Testament that point us to you and eventually to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the greater altar, his cross, and glorious resurrection. We thank you for this great story that reminds us that you are a compassionate God and you so desire us to come back to you. And I pray for those in this room right now who would acknowledge they have slidden away from you. They're not walking with you as they once did. But they've heard your voice even this morning say, come back to me. Come to the altar. I'll come to you. If that's you, dear friend, would you respond to God? I pray for those who've never been to the cross of Jesus, never repented of their sin, never believed on the Lord Jesus' glorious death and resurrection. If that's you, friend, trust him today. And God will give you the praise for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.